Welcome to the Lee Schools TV podcast. We are excited to be back from our summer hiatus, if you will. And I'm Adam Wright with Lee Schools TV, and we're very excited about our guest today, Ken Savage, Executive Director for Strategic Sustainability and Governance. Ken, thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here, Adam. All right, before we get started, just want to mention, uh, you might notice that we've got some new equipment, some brand new microphones and some uh, boom arms. And just to clear the air, privately donated, so no cost to the taxpayer, which is cool. And yeah, we are excited for our new season of podcasts. And just a quick reminder, you can find the Lee Schools TV podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and the video version is also on Facebook and YouTube. So, all right, well, let's get started. Ken, how you doing, man? You know, life is good. I feel very lucky every day. Every day I have to pinch myself. Uh, so, yeah, I feel great. It's happy to be home back yeah. in Lee County. Welcome back to the school district of Lee County. So, real quick, you were... Uh, you've been working for the last year before coming back to the district. You worked for the State Department of Education. That's right. And before that, you were the principal of James Stevens International Aca Academy. Mm -hmm. And you helped turn that school around in a very short time. It went from an F to a B under your uh, watch. That's right. <laughs> so that kind of paved the way for you to work for the state. So real quick, can you just kind of talk about what you were doing, what your title was with the State Department of Education mm -hmm. before you came back here to the district? Yes, I was a member of the uh, Chancellor for K-12 Public Schools Cabinet. Uh, so it's a very interesting thing. There's four of us on cabinet there and, uh, you know, a number of different, it's a, it's a broad purview of what the state is required to do. Basically, everything that touches K-12 education, we where we have the state level responsibility for that. Uh, it was a mind-blowing experience. I, I just can't say enough that I've, you know, in a single year's time, I really feel like I learned about 10 years worth, uh, which is humbling to admit because you know, after you know, a, a pretty long career in education already and having been in a number of seats on the bus, you know, I've worked in all levels. I've been a leader in all levels. Uh, you know, having been a teacher in a number of different subject areas, I've taught in other cities. Um, you know, I have a lot of experiences in education. I, I have my master's, my doctorate. I've studied a great deal about education, but the state experience was um, just one of the most amazing experiences of my entire professional and personal life. Uh, it was quite an adventure to go on. And I uh, got to see a change in leadership at the top, you know, got to be there for one commissioner, passing the torch to another commissioner, uh, from one governor to another governor uh, in the seat uh, for politics for the whole state of Florida. So it's, it was a pretty mind-blowing thing to be behind those closed doors, to hear those conversations, to understand what people were thinking about and all the different things that go into all the decisions that are made at a state level. Uh, additionally, I had the chance to get to know people across an agency of over 2,000 employees uh, that really their decisions and their support touch every child and every worker in the state of Florida. And so it's a tremendous um, it's a tremendous responsibility, but I got a chance to meet a lot of the rank-and-file folks as well as all the bureau chiefs and executives at the state level and work with them. Um, so I, I, you know, in a short time, I had a very neat seat on the bus, uh, very similar to kind of the seat on the bus that I have here. Um, you know, the, the, the chancellor of education at the time, who was then Chancellor Lyons, when he kind of pitched the concept for the role that they created for me at the state level, he said, Ken, we're a very siloed bureaucratic institution. And, you know, that in some cases builds expertise. People in their lane really know a great deal about their lane. They know the law, they know the policies, they really get to know it very well. 
but most of what happens is integrated and you have two people working very hard who are completely unaware of what the other one's doing and that leads to inefficiencies it leads to you know duplicate work and it leads to you know com communication problems and, and just efficiency and effectiveness problems and you know when dr atkins talked about the role here it was very similar to that in the sense that you knew these very strong divisions uh, with strong infrastructure but in a school as a principal you have to learn how to integrate across all your workflows. You really have to, you can't allow people to become too bureaued, um, too, um, you know, segregated in their kind of approach. You have to constantly be maximizing your resources. And so it kind of trains you to think a little differently when you get to the large bureaucracies mm -hmm. of how to, how to help in that regard. So that's, that's what I did at the state level. And now coming here, I get that. Um, one of the things the, the superintendent Atkins uh, said to me was, Ken, I have seven bosses. I've got a huge district of children and and parents and community people that are that need need this district to continue to improve and move forward. But I've got a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of politics and things like that that can stand in the way. So I want you to help make sure that we the most important work always moves forward. That we don't get lost and and sidelined for the important work. The important work has to move forward. And that's something that I get to, so I get to focus on important work, uh, things that are of the most importance to the superintendent and just ensure that we don't allow those things to, to drag. We keep them moving. So yeah, we'll dive into that a little oh, bit more in a great. second. But what, so were you, had you always wanted to come back to Lee County or was it something that you weren't really expecting? I'm sure, I know, I know we missed you here <laughs> and that uh, Dr. Atkins wanted to bring you back. Did, did the district kind of actively recruit you back or how did that work? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. So, so it was, it was a kind of a unique journey for me, how it kind of unfolded. And I would say that, um, you know, I had a number of different opportunities to continue, you know, after being principal year, you have a lot of people who are reaching out to you, uh, to, to try to recruit you to, for something. Mm. And, you know, the, the state role was specifically, you know, I, to create a job directly for me, to contribute at that level while learning at the same time was really to me a once in a lifetime opportunity. Um, and so I never really anticipated that it would be a very long-term thing. You know, I, I thought at most maybe two years, unless I fell in love with it. You know, I mean, that that's a possibility. You yeah. get to a new seat on the bus that you've never had before. And maybe you, you see, wow, I really like this side of it. But, you know, as much as I learned and as much as I grew, I think I really understood once I was there pretty much what it entailed. Um, and, you know, if you're the kind of person who just loves to read statute every day and loves to analyze policy and things like that, then yes, that's probably the best seat on the bus for you. And, and some of the people that are there are just phenomenal folks, br really brilliant, talented people that love to do that work. But for me, I knew that being far away from students, you know, is not, that you have to have that impact too, that you really know. And for that year while I was up at the state, you know, there are no kids anywhere. Mm. You're in a building of over 2,000 people, and it's, it's multiple stories. You're spending a lot of your time in meeting rooms and hallways and elevators. But the most joyous moment you get is when you get to go out and visit with people who are in the field. You know, you get to visit with principals. You get to visit with superintendents. You get to visit with teachers, kids in buildings. And whenever you get that chance, then it kind of reminds you what all of the work is really about. And so... I think while I was there, and, and I certainly was put to good use while I was there, I just, there was a lingering part of me that felt like 
if I keep doing this at this place, you know, that's going to take me down a path that, that maybe isn't necessarily the, the, the seat on the bus that I want. Mm. And so the unique opportunity provided by uh, Dr. Atkins is that I get a similar level of, um, you know, a lot of the things they ask me to do are very similar to what I'm asked to do here, but it really is applied. You know, I really know I'll get to see the impact in kids and in schools and in the community. Uh, and it's a community where my family lives. You know, my parents live here. My wife's parents live here. My brothers work in the school system. I mean, we're all educators. If you hear the name Savage, I guarantee you there are savages everywhere. We multiply. Um, <laughs> and we just love this. This is, our, this is not just a, a job. You know, this is what we're all about. I mean, you should come to our family gatherings it is pretty boring for non-educators because we just yap about education stuff. I mean, it's what we talk about. All our friends do it. So, was that an open invitation for me to come to a yes, savage family absolutely. Gathering? I would love to have you. In fact, um, come to our. We're going to be going to a Cleveland Browns game this year, but we watch the Browns every Sunday, and there's never a better insight to watch uh, the Savage family than when we're engaged in watching a football game. And my brother will usually have my youngest brother have a laptop out where he'll be typing on, you know, formative assessments or things like that. And so in on the commercial breaks, we'll be talking about education things, then back onto football. So, you know, it's a very interesting experience. You're, you're welcome to come. Yeah, sounds like fun. Uh, <laughs> so are you, are you originally from Ohio? Yes. yes yeah, I'm from Cleveland originally. That's okay. where I was born. And you came to Florida when? I actually came down as a fifth grader uh, in, in Lee County, and I was at Villas Elementary. My first principal was a guy named Jim Donmoyer. And uh, it's funny, he had a picture of me when I, I played the Scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz in a show here down here as a fifth grader, right when I came down, and he saved my picture, this little photo of me, many, many years, because a long time later, I came back to Lee County for my administrative career, and I became an assistant principal at Cypress Middle. And when I did, he was one of the very first phone calls of someone to congratulate me on working, you know, becoming an administrator, um, and he was in his last year, I think, and he retired shortly thereafter, but he saved that picture and he gave it to my boss, and she held that as leverage over my head, this little embarrassing photo of me. Uh, but it just shows that when you're part of a community, it's not just a job. You know, for him, it was personal. He was a, he was a big part of this community, and I think for me, when I retire, I would love to know that I, I spent my entire career serving a community, uh, and I think that's a big reason why we came back. I had some other good opportunities to go um, and work in other states and, and bigger titles and, and more money and things like that. But the reality is, like, at the end of your life, what really matters are the people. Uh, you know, more than the money, more than the titles, more than the acclaim, awards, and all that stuff. That really doesn't mean a lot to me, um, which is ironic, obviously, I know, having, having some of those things. But what really matters to me are the, the people. Uh, and that's not just my family, but, like, friends and colleagues. And, you know, you just really, if you're going to put all this time and energy in, you want it to be with people that you love and respect, um, and that's why we came back. All right, yeah, it's a great community to be a part of. Uh, so you're so you're back with the district, and once again, you're the executive director for strategic sustainability and government governance. Mm -hmm. It's a brand new position at the district. Mm -hmm. uh, what are you laughing at? The mouthful. Well, yeah, it's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I've got in my little notes. What does the EDSSG? do the executive director of strategic oh, yes. sustainability and government. So uh, the position created basically for you, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you, so you mentioned that it's, it's your job to kind of make sure that, you know, we don't lose sight of the, the big picture stuff mm -hmm. and the main mm -hmm. priorities. So what would those, what would those be? 
Well, I mean, the number one thing is student learning, right? Student learning is the whole reason we operate. I mean, obviously, we need to keep kids safe. There are so many other things that go with We need to make sure kids are fed. We need to make sure our staff are well-supported. But at the end of the day, if kids aren't learning at the highest levels, you know, that's really what schools are here for. Um, and while that sounds like a pretty straightforward mandate, it's not quite as easy as you think um, because, you know, you have, you know, one of the issues, one of the biggest issues facing Lee County is equity. Right. So, you know, it starts even before kindergarten. So let me give an example of kind of what what I mean by that. You have children who walk into kindergarten who already can read, which is essentially one of the key things we want them to be able to do by the end of kindergarten. Yeah. But you have kids who can read and they can read maybe in some cases like first or second graders. I mean, so they're coming in essentially way ahead of the game. Meanwhile, you have other students who are coming in who've not had any kind of early learning experience outside of this kindergarten experience. They've, you know, they're five-year-olds in most cases, mm -hmm. and they're coming to the table never having been in an organized setting, never, you know, having to follow rules in the way that we would think or being a part of a structure like that. Some of them are coming from environments where they haven't been nurtured so that there's a lot of hurt and suffering that they've endured, even though they're very young lives. You know, mm -hmm. they, you know a lot of times it, it mirrors with socioeconomics. Uh, which is a real challenge in our society, not just here in, in Florida and yeah, Fort Myers, right. but everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a big through line of education is that what we want it to be is a gateway so that children and families can have dreams, that they can have things they want to achieve, they can have dignity and have live dignified lives. And education can be that equalizer, um, and it's why we continue to invest as it, why it's such a priority for states to prioritize their educational setting. But here in Fort Myers, you know, we really get to see that play out. We have families that come from really um, at-risk backgrounds, and we have to f educationally figure out, okay, how can we help students who are coming at that same level, these kids who can already read, kids who don't know any of their letters and have never seen letters before, how can we rapidly get them to a level that's fair for them and that allows them to eventually get to a level where they can be, you know, graduates and go on to live productive lives and, and you know, be contributing members of society in a positive way? And, and really, that's our charge. So, and I've taken that charge very personally. Um, my family does too. <laughs> you know, we're, we're very invested in that charge, but it's complicated. And, um, you know, so to support the superintendent in that regard is really one of my key pieces. So how do you do that? Yeah. Well, one one way that we do that is really with data. So you probably heard data so much that I hate even mentioning the word because it conjures up numbers and all these things. But really what data is all about is evidence, right? And evidence, you know, we make evidence-based decisions all the time without even realizing it, where, where we just, we kind of interpret data in ways that, you know, that are so... You, you wouldn't even realize it. Like a good example is when you're driving down the road. When you're driving down the road, you are instantly gauging your speed. You're kind of looking at your dashboard to see kind of how fast your car's going. You, you're glancing out the window to see the speed limit sign, looking at other cars in proximity to you to kind of, okay, well, you know, yeah, it's 45, but all these cars are going over 50. You know, you're, you're making a lot of these judgments quickly and in real time based on all the information you have available to you. And yeah. that allows you then to try to keep yourself safe, to figure out where you, know, where you want to go and all those things. Well, the same thing we do in education. You know, we are constantly looking at all the evidence we have to try to make informed decisions about kids and about their rate of learning and, and you know, whether they're struggling at it or not. And what do we do about it? Teachers are looking at that kind of evidence. Principals are looking at that evidence. And the district's looking at that kind of evidence. Parents are looking at that kind of evidence. We're all doing it. And because it's, you know, it's so important to get that right, 
and to look at the best evidence and to look at the best things, that's a big part of my role is to try to help, you know, with that, try to figure out what could we look at to accurately know, you know, the value we're really adding uh, to our kids in our system uh, so that, you know, the kid who came in already reading is being sufficiently challenged. You know, it's not fair to just, you know, not push that child who already came in reading. Mm -hmm. We need to continue to push that child, but we also have to individually reach the child who really was not ready for this experience yet. And so that individualized path, uh, you know, and what that looks like at scale is a big part of, you know, something that I'm contributing on right now. So are you... um are you mainly focused on the early years or you kind of go through K through 12? It's K through 12. Yeah. I, so I get to work across the entire organization. The same way the superintendent is deployed across the entire, yeah. every kid, every level. There's no one that's more significant to him. It's, it's really important. I, I get to basically be right there with him. You know, whatever we need. I think there is a lot more attention needed in the early learning. Yeah. Um, and part of that is because we as a district – you know, essentially we have an obligation once they hit kindergarten, but we know that the issues begin before kindergarten. And so part of it is, are we a strategic partner in engaging all the people who have a similar interest and a similar resources, um, you know, and a similar mandate, you know, that they, you know, like uh, they're, they're from a government standpoint, from a nonprofit standpoint, from business standpoint, and from a community standpoint, there are so many people engaged in that conversation so how do we as a district fulfill a key role in that partnership to make that, you know, go forward? So um, I know you're still new mm-hmm. to the position, and so you are probably, you, know, you still have a lot of work to do, but once you, have you already started collecting data? Um, so once you have all this information, what do you do with it? How do you how do you implement some kind of strategy? What's what's kind of the end end goal? Yeah, that's that sounds like something the superintendent would ask too. You know, one <laughs> of the things that that um, you know he he's the the term you know he doesn't want analysis paralysis. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want the data to be overwhelming. Similar to like the car analogy, right? Like you you don't want to be overwhelmed by the amount of information around you. It needs to be just enough for you to make the right decision, but not too much that it overwhelms you. And so that's a big part of what I take on is my responsibility is, you know, I, having been a principal at the different levels, having been a leader at the different levels, having been in these things, I have a pretty good sense of the information that I would have liked to have had when I was in those chairs, you know, or the information I had to try to create, right? Mm -hmm. So because I know that, and because I've, I've talked to teachers who are, you know, in that kindergarten trenches all the way up through high school seniors and whatnot, you do, I, I do have a sense of, you know, some of the things that they would like to have. And so, Part of what I try to work on is developing a model that gives each client basically exactly what they need to know. So, for example, I will be able to tell a high-performing school, a school that's maybe a perennial A school, they are looking at their paper and they're thinking, you know, we're an A school. Where do we have to improve? Well, I can very precisely show them, well, you're an A school, yes, but a lot of that's because your kids came in already reading. Yeah. And so their scores are going to be pretty high. But here, when you compare yourself to other high-performing schools or serving a similar group of students, they're not, you know, they're not, your kids aren't growing quite as much as their kids are. So aren't you curious about, oh, what is what are these other schools doing? Sometimes they're local schools, sometimes they're schools around the state. So it's kind of framing their performance so that they are curious about how they can be better. Uh, meanwhile, you know, when you go to schools that are like DRF schools, 
there's already a sense of urgency there. You know, there's already a school that knows that they could get shut down, uh, similar to like what we had at James Stevens or, you know, before that Dunbar High School, where, I, where was that? You know, some of these turnaround experiences that I've had, they really stay with you. Um, but I would also argue that some of the schools I've worked at or been the principal of where, you you know, it wasn't necessarily a turnaround environment. It can be very difficult to have a sense of urgency where people come to work and realize wow, I have a lot more to do, you know, uh, that, that we're, while we think we're an A or B school, we really could be much, much better than we are. And I think that's a healthy level of urgency that kind of honors all aspects of our community. You know, we can't just focus on DRF schools because that's not really addressing the type of improvement we really need as an entire system. Mm-hmm. So you're able to, um, or you'll be able to, once you have all the data kind of pinpoint exact um, instances or mm-hmm. problem areas for to, to improve That's schools right. of all levels across all socioeconomic lines? That's right. Cool. Yeah. Is, is there anything else um, big picture that you're working on or is that uh, yeah that's I mean that's a student learning side of it yeah. and and that and I, I'm, I'm not doing it just there's a whole lot to that side yeah. of it but you know the other piece is just to work across the entire organization you know like right now I'm working on a number of safety and security related things uh, too you know because you know we can talk about learning all we want but if kids aren't safe you know we failed <laughs> so that's something that we take very seriously as a district because you know just like when you're a parent, the only thing you, you really care about as a parent is to keep your kids safe. Mm-hmm. You know, all the rest of it's gravy, yep. but, but keeping them safe and alive and well is really the thing that keeps you up all night. When you're a superintendent or when you're, you know, leading a district or leading a school, the only thing you think about, you know, it just, it haunts you that, you know, this is all on your watch and the, the policies you come up with, the procedures, the, the people you hire, the, you know, all those things, you know, even if one child is critically injured or dies, you never forget that. You, you just never forget it. Even if it had nothing to do with you, it just becomes a, a level of responsibility you take on. So, yeah, I'm working on some safety-related things right now to address some of those very real issues, um, you know, and, and just a whole number of things. I mean, I that's one of the benefits of while I was at the state and while I'm here as well. You know, in, in prior years, you might, and a lot of people, have a very specific area they focus on. I get to really focus wherever the greatest need is and wherever um, you know, our superintendent really believes it's a significant priority, whether it's a short-term priority or a long-term priority. I get to drill in on those particular areas, and that's pretty gratifying work. Are you able to talk any specifics about the safety things you're working on, or is it a little too early to, to discuss? Uh, well, I mean, you know, some of it has to do with um, compliance related to state law. You know, so we, you know, we have something called the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Commission. That it's, it, you know, people who follow kind of politics and kind of follow that pretty. It gets a lot of um, notoriety. Mm-hmm. And while political things aren't always the most interesting, because they're serving kind of some other interests, sometimes they can be kind of used in ways, you know, for people's political careers. The reality is what it's really about at its core is about, you know, being proactive and keeping kids safe. And that I can get on board with, you know, that any of us can, you know, is trying to see not the noise, but what's the core concept beneath it. And I think I'm working on a number of things that to help to us to ensure that what we're doing is both correct in the letter of the law, as well as intentionally protecting our community, our kids um, and our staff, to be honest, too. It's not just our kids, it's our staff, you know, that we're living in a very 
volatile time. We're living in a time where, you know, school shootings are far more prevalent than they've ever been. That's scary. I mean, that is scary as a parent, as a, as a, as a school leader, as a person who worked in schools, as a teacher. You know, the fact that we have to worry about those things is just something that is um, a sign of where we're at right now as a time. And yet we as district leaders have, have an obligation to say, what can we do to keep people safe? And so that's where I get to you know, help troubleshoot. I get to help make sure that we're following the letter of the law, but also doing things that are really good for all of our people. So let's step back a little bit and talk um, about kind of your, your beginnings <laughs> with the district. And you've had, uh, you met, you, obviously we mentioned you were at James Stevens, uh, principal of the year, like mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier. I'm sorry, I forgot to kind of add that to the beginning of your <laughs> please uh, introduction. You don't ever have to say it, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned Cypress Middle, Dunbar High School. So mm-hmm. where? So you moved to Lee County in fifth grade. You mm-hmm. said um, that's right. And then you went to Villas. Mm-hmm. And from Villas Elementary as a fifth grader, I went uh, to Dunbar Middle, which is actually not the Dunbar Middle that we currently have, but where the campus of Dunbar High School is, mm-hmm. used to be a middle school. Uh, and I attended there for um, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. I was part of the gifted program, which was a little, we were in portables on the campus. It was my first experience here in Lee County with kind of the magnet and, and starting to understand the segregated nature of our community and, and some of those things. You know, we were bused down there. It was before Veronica Shoemaker existed. So We'd ride in a bus and literally cross the other side of the tracks and go into a school. It, it really was very powerful in terms of shaping me and the things that I would one day care about. That at the time, as a child, I really didn't understand, really. It just was kind of part of that experience, that background. Uh, then I went to Cypress High School from there and graduated locally here. And then I went off to undergrad at uh, Florida State University for my my undergrad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then I uh, did my master's and my doctorate at University of Florida. Um, yeah. See, there you go. You're like my wife and my brothers. They're all all Gators. Um, but I'm still a Seminole at heart. I've, I've certainly given the University of Florida more money. Um, and I actually am a professor there too. So I'm teaching. Yeah, I had um, that. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, you're, teaching, you're teaching a master's class? Yeah. A master's at leadership course. So um, one of their courses is about organizational leadership, uh, which is pertinent considering the last two jobs that I've had now have been very much organizational, large organizational uh, leadership roles. So an executive director now, an executive director in the past. Um, the state level purview uh, really is cool because you get to see higher ed, you get to see you know, nonprofits, you get to see national, the, the federal side, you get to see state government. I mean, you really get a broad understanding of that. So it's been cool to not just bring elementary, middle, and high school and district experience, but state experience to that course as well. Uh, and to help those, um, you know, to help challenge our next group of leaders coming. So, yeah, so um, I, I went through that kind of higher ed path and back to Florida State. You know, I, I did not set out to originally be in education. I actually was in film school. So this kind of setup for me of where we are right now would have been much more exciting to me. Um, <laughs> and actually that kind of started even in middle school. You know, we started with, you know, journalism and TV production. And, you know, I was the anchor in our high school um, so I got to be the daily yeah, you sound like You sound like me. <laughs> there that's, you that's, go. That's and how I, I got started, it. too. I enjoyed it. Um, and I actually really enjoyed film school. Uh, it was cool. Florida State has a pretty um, prestigious film school in, the, in that circle, and they, they don't take a lot of people. And the reason why they're so highly sought after is because they pay for all your film. Whereas if you go to, like, NYU, 
you, at least at that time, I don't know if it's still that way, you had to buy all your own film. And now, of course, with digital media, it's, yeah. it's a whole nother world. But back then, when I was in film school, you actually had real cameras with film cameras, yeah, you know, what film exposures. Film? <laughs> and I, of course, having gone through the video world, I had no idea, you know, that you actually were exposing film and recording the audio separately and then merging them together. And so I learned all those things in film school. And, you know, while I was in film school the first couple of years, because um, I had all my prereqs taken care of. You know, I did a lot of advanced learning when I was in high school. So I came to college basically with my first two years already done. So I got to jump right into the major and and go to and shoot film all over the panhandle and all over campus. And, um, and they asked, you know, what is the job you want? And I thought, well, I'd love to be a director. And they said, okay, well, if you want to be a director, the best way to do that is to be a writer, you know, to write screenplays and things like that. And so I thought, okay, what's a career that I could get that I could write and, you know, in, in my off time, I thought, oh, teaching, that'd be perfect. <laughs> you know, you teach 10 months out of the year, you could spend your summers writing. Yeah. I love to coach sports. I coached um, basketball and football. I really enjoyed that too. So I thought, ah, it's a win-win. I can teach something. I like all the subjects, so we'll see what that is, but I'll really, I'll just write my screenplays and if one of them gets picked up, I'll get a chance to be a director. So I switched into education strictly <laughs> as a practical paycheck, you know, so I didn't have to just go work on a film crew out in California or something. So did you switch majors? I did. Right after your my undergrad? Summer. Yeah, just okay. after the first two years, I switched over to education because that's kind of the time when most people actually get into their major is by their junior year. Yeah. And so for me, that was like, great, I get to jump into a major. I'm not behind at all. Um, but, you know, of course, when you actually become a teacher, you realize it's not like that. <laughs> and I think, and when I coached, and so, of course, there were no screenplays being written. There was no downtime. <laughs> And Not even I, during the summer? No, because the summer, even the summer as teachers, you're, you're really working. If you're trying to be any good at what you're doing, you you have to keep working at it. You know, you're, you're really analyzing what went wrong, what went right, trying to get better. And, and yeah, it's too, you take some time off, but a lot of our best teachers, if you go out there and talk to them, there's no such thing as a real summer. Not, not to the way that it's perceived, maybe. Um, and so I really, you know, I kind of fell into education a bit. And at the time, I wouldn't say that I really loved it. It just didn't feel like, you know, I hadn't, I really wasn't sure where my seat was on the bus, but I was pretty sure education wasn't it. And so then I um, went to law school. And while I was in law school, I still taught. And I, I taught during the day. And at nighttime, I would do this law degree. And I was in Jacksonville in an inner city school. So this is the first time I ever worked in a really tough school. And it was a failing school. And, you know, here I was. At nighttime, I was sitting next to a vice president of Bank of America who was only getting his Jairus doctor to make, you know, $100,000 more or something. He could move up in his organization at, at Bank of America. And then during the day, I was working with kids in the most intense poverty and, and violence in the city of Jacksonville. It was in the most high crime area, and it was a failing school. And this was a 97% um, African-American school and 90, it was a 100% poverty school uh, at that time. And um, I just couldn't, you know, these kids were just like me, you know, and that's the part that finally got me. You know, I, I was seeing these kids who just didn't, they weren't born with the privilege that I was born with. And they were in a community where, you know, they just didn't have a lot of resources and they really didn't have a lot of advocacy. They didn't have people looking out for them. Uh, to keep them on track. And what really struck me was the kids didn't even really have dreams. You know, if you'd ask them what they wanted to be, most of the boys would just say an NFL player or a rap artist. 
it's because that's all they knew. You know, most of their families weren't you know employed and things like that, and and it, you know their families were very fractured and things. And I realized that not only you know did they most of them didn't even play football. So to say they want to be an NFL player when they didn't even play football is kind of absurd to say something like that. But it just it it just kind of gave me an insight into the fact that there were larger issues in our communities that needed to be addressed. And to me, that's all of a sudden from that moment on, I knew maybe not exactly the job that I would have, but I knew the mission that I was on. And I would be using education as that vehicle to really try to be a vehicle for equity um, so that kids who just happen to be born in a particular area in a particular situation can actually have very real dreams and that they can, you know, I want them to have dreams. I don't care where, you know, what family you're born into, you should have the right to have dreams. Uh, to be able to pursue those dreams. And so I be, have become an agent, an advocate agent for that, uh, to support that in my career. And ever since, the energy that you see me have and things like that, that's all, it's not coffee. I mean, I drink coffee too, but it's its because that passion for that really just kind of set me on this path. And, and it, it makes me excited to wake up every day and do that work. So where did you say that school was? It was in Jacksonville. Jacksonville. And unfortunately, the school... Uh, was shut down. Uh, it was a failing school for too long, mm. and eventually it was reconstituted, and then a different campus somewhere else was moved onto that physical campus and became a hundred percent magnet. At that time, it was a neighborhood school, mm-hmm. um, and it was a it was a very real struggling school. Like to give you an example of what kind of conditions it was like, just because I think it's one thing to say a failing school, it's it's a whole other thing to actually see what that looks like. I was a teacher, right, and I had anywhere from twenty two to twenty five kids in my class. At least two days a week, an administrator would walk in another class of kids for a 90-minute block and sit them on the floor. So I'd have not just my 22 kids, but 22 or 25 additional kids who would be who I didn't know potentially sitting on the floor in that room while I would try to teach. This is two out of the five days a week. And then why one, did, why did he bring them in? Well, because they couldn't get teachers to come to the place, and they couldn't get subs. You know, you talk about a place, you know that is such a high crime area and, and such a high poverty area, you're dealing with a lot of other issues. And they just couldn't get people to come work there. So you had to teach like 50 kids? Yeah, and and, and who knows what. I mean, they, you know, they, they didn't bring them in for my subject area. You know, they could bring them in. They may have been in math class and their math teacher's out. They, they just bring them in and sit them on the floor. And then one day out of the five days, they'd bring in a third class. Oh, wow. And so I'd have almost, you know, 100 kids. I mean, 75 kids. And fit in there. There was just enough room for me to stand in the front of the room. Wow. And then the rest of them on the floor. And I mean, imagine you thinking think middle school age kids for 90 minutes, 75 kids, two thirds of which I might not know them. I mean, that's the kind of thing that just grips you and it makes you think like this isn't a third world country. This is the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, this is happening. And if that were to happen here in Lee County, you know, there, people would be at a board meeting. I mean, they'd be raising up the alarm, but this there was no alarm being raised. This just went on. And when you live with that kind of duality where you've got this really affluent kind of clientele being served in a law school by night, and you've got this other side of the, the, the world, you know, in your community being really underserved in a way that is borderline criminal to me, we have an obligation to do something, a moral obligation. And that and that's what kind of got me and, and just kind of catapulted me. So that, that hopefully gives you a little more clarity of what yeah. I was referring to. So when did you come to work in Lee County Schools? So at that moment, after that experience, I that's when I went to University of Florida, switched over to what they had as a joint juris doctor and master's ed leadership. Okay. You know, again, I, the job wasn't 
you know, that kind of prepares you if you want to be like a school board attorney and yeah. things like that. But I, I really chose more of the practical side, which, you know, takes you down school-based administration. And so um, I did my that in Gainesville while I was teaching too. I was still getting my master's there. And then I, when I became an administrator, once I finished my degree, um, I came to Lee County because I, it's one of those things where when you become an administrator, a lot of it is networking and, and getting, getting to know other administrators and building those relationships. Um, and so it made sense because my family lived down here, uh, to, to start my administrative career down here. So, I mean, I've been in education almost 20 years. Um, and you know, it, 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 it seems like a blink of an eye. I mean, I, I feel like it was just only yesterday that I was in those schools and now it's like, and that's how quickly it goes. But I think it's also why I have a sense of urgency that, you know, we all want to live a big, full, long life. But the reality is, you know, every minute that you get is is so significant. And if you can either use it to benefit others and really serve with every minute you have and feel really good about that, or you can kind of serve yourself. And for me, that's kind of been the charge of, you know, being surrounded by family that is that is motivated by the same thing, that we really want to help our community, that it, you know, it's okay to work hard, but it's a lot easier to work hard when you know that what you're doing is benefiting other people. It's very fulfilling to do that. So so you eventually made your way to James Stevens International <laughs> Academy, principal right. there, and that school was failing and it was on the verge of being yeah, shut state down. shut down, that's right. So it was an F school and, and I came out and did a story on it. That's mm-hmm. what you know, led you to be named principal of the year. Yeah. Uh, so if you, you can go to our YouTube channel and, you know, just look for the James Stevens, uh, story. It was probably about a year and a half ago yeah, now. A that, years. Um, so you went for, you, you helped bring it from an F to an A or a B, B. school mm-hmm. in one year. That's right. Well, it wasn't how, me. How As did, you know, that was yes, a team. It was, you know, sorry. Yeah. It was um, part of a great team of people. And and that's what and I like. That about, that's what I like continues. about you. Cause you never, <laughs> you never forget to, um, give credit to, to your team as well. Uh, so how did you guys do that? How'd you, how'd you make that happen? Well, I, you know, just as I kind of said, I'm, I'm not saying it to be nice. I'm saying it because it really is the truth. You know, that's one of the great things about education that, you know, when I was kind of coming up through the ranks, you know, through schooling of my own and everything else professionally, a lot of times, like as a coach too, like a lot of what you do is a product of yourself, you know, your work, your ideas, your strategy, in education or when you get to really complex challenges, it's no longer possible to do it all by yourself. That's what I love about big organizational challenges is that, you know, it's never just you when you get to a complex enough challenge. It now becomes a group of you or, you know, in all the systems you put in place. And I think because it makes it harder, it makes it more fulfilling when you achieve, right? And and it it you know, whereas, you know, an individual accolade is nice. You can put a trophy on the wall or whatever. You can tell stories about it. But, you know, being principal of the year to me was more of a tribute of the ethos that, you know, that I stood for and the people that I had the privilege of working with stood for. So, like, you know, to give you Kelly Stedman, who's still the principal there, it's a great point of pride for me that I had the chance to go there with her and with the team that was there and that some of those folks are still there, mm-hmm. not just building on our success, but but surpassing what we what we did initially, you know, and that because that ultimately is the true test. You know, you really don't want to have a flash of where you succeed and then the school goes back to an yeah. FOD again. Because then you're really harming those kids in the community by not building the sustainability. 
That's a big part of my current role now is that sustainability concept. Yeah, it's got um, the, the word right in That's right. <laughs> that's right. And, and our superintendent, you know, has that vision. Here's the reality. Our superintendent could retire tomorrow if he wanted. He could if he chose to do it. And that means that every day we have him, it's because he chooses it because he wants to do exactly what he's doing and he believes in what we're doing, but he wants the success of our district to move beyond him. You know, he doesn't want it to be something where when he leaves one day that, that the school district falls apart, you know, to him and to me, and this is one of the reasons why I believe and support him so strongly is that if it's about the person individually, you've really lost the point. You know, the goal isn't about us. The goal is about, you know, the mission of what we're trying to do. And in order to do that, you have to lead yourself out of a job. You have to build the capacity of others. You have to recognize that we have more than enough talent around us. It just, our people, our people in the seat on the bus where they can best contribute and can be developed and grown to achieve their destiny and their potential. And that's your job as a leader is not to, you know, direct attention back to yourself, but to figure out, okay, what are the things we can put in place to actually build up all the people around us to achieve their dreams and to achieve their best ability to serve and give, um, you know, find those win-wins. And I think that's something that uh, has been, it's been a great opportunity. And, you know, the James Stevens piece was one of the most gratifying professional and personal things I ever got to do that year. Um, and those people, you know, I, I just, the team, just phenomenal. I mean, all of us coming together in really a very high pressure situation. You have, you know, for seven consecutive years, the lowest or second lowest performing school of the hundred schools in Lee County. I mean, that's how consistently underperforming the, the school was. And the reality was they just were really a byproduct of poverty and things like that. You know, you had an at-risk community being served and, you know, just having a hard time getting people to come there. And so it was a real privilege that when I was uh, given the opportunity that the people who joined me on that journey were more than willing to put, you know, to some cases they left the school where their children attended. They left jobs that were very close to their homes to drive further, <laughs> to, you know, to fight that traffic, which we know in Lee County all too well. And yet the the thing that I sold them on a lot of cases, it wasn't even money. They could, they didn't make any additional monetary rewards for going to these schools. But the thing that I would say is, I promise you, you will remember this for the rest of your life, and I can I can assure you, they all will. Being a part of a team where you look around and you see the people that are that can that are better than you in certain ways, and that you are able to contribute in a way that's very organic, it just there's just nothing like it. Mm-hmm. And and now as a district leader, you know I get to try to look for those same synergies and things, and it's just it's a pretty awesome experience. I know. You, so part of what you did was you. Um lengthened the school day that's right a little bit and mm-hmm. fed the students an extra meal per that's day right, i think because right. of the length the longer day mm-hmm. um so yeah how did that feel i mean when you saw like that letter grade did you did you kind of see that the progress the progression throughout the year like i, I can tell that oh, yeah. we're getting better and we so knew we, in october i mean yeah. we could tell you know it's funny the first couple the first month or so you you do kind of wonder oh boy if if we bitten off more than we can chew, you know, this is such a hard challenge. Do we really, but, but it, it just takes time. Mm-hmm. You know, you're bringing everyone back to school. It's kind of a transitional time in schools when you have kids who have been off for the summer and all of a sudden they're back. So you have to kind of get everybody on the same page in terms of the culture. And, and really all we were doing was turning what was a very dysfunctional environment into a not just a normal school, but a high-performing institution where really the expectations are high. 
the quality of the teaching staff is extremely high. The dedication of the assistants, the paraprofessionals and whatnot was high. And, um, and the support was high, you know, not just like the food is a good example of that. I mean, no one can learn if they're starving. Yeah. If you're hungry and you're hurting because your body is hurting from hunger pains, there's no food in your house. You just can't learn. You don't care about math. You just don't yeah. care. You know, because ask, you just ask want my food. wife. I can't do anything <laughs> if I'm hungry. So. Right. So imagine that if you go home in the weekend, you don't eat anything. There's yeah. no food or very little food. You know, and you're you're competing as a child, small child. You know, the older kids or whoever. I mean, it. You know, this is sounds like I'm not trying to pull the heartstrings. I'm just saying this is very genuine. It's very real. And you know, so for me, it was a non-negotiable that I had to come up with a strategy to offset the basic needs not being met, and that meant a longer day is a win-win because it, we didn't just beat kids with more books. We we had them now all kids got a longer period of physical athletic activity, so they got to use some of the energy they had. We fed them four meals a day: breakfast, a snack during the mid-morning, lunch, and dinner, supper. And of course, if they have food at home, that's great too. But I mean, those kids just. They wolfed it down. I mean, so then it was very obvious that our kids needed more food. And and so just by taking that and making that equitable so that all of our kids got that additional benefit, that allowed kids to actually focus on learning and the teachers to focus on learning and, and not have to trying to teach through that somehow. Mm. Um, so that was, it was one strategy among many others. Uh, you know, the, one of the big things that we did really was invest in our teachers. You know, we knew that teachers needed planning time. And that was a way to do it. You know, we gave them more planning time. Because we had the kids for a longer period of day, it allowed us to give our teachers more planning time during the day, consolidated time, where they could actually engage in the, the more heavy lift of improving their lesson plans and things like that, as opposed to at a lot of schools where they may get a half an hour really after they've gone to the bathroom and things like that. You know, that's not really professional time. So we, we really invested in all sides, the kids, the adults. Um, you know, we did all the things we could think of to just to move the needle and allow that initial success to kind of build the momentum. And, and it, it succeeded. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Big accomplishment. Um, and I know your, I know your, your wife works here at the district as well. Is it <laughs> Rebecca? That's right. There's, okay. So there's I'm two Rebecca's, right. right? So my brother's wife is Rebecca and my, my wife's Rebecca and we all work in the school system. Um, yeah, my wife, Rebecca, you know, and this is, it's so interesting, you know, you talk about the passion I have for equity and things like that. Well, she is probably even more so. Um, and so it really is a family mission. And, you know, we have two little ones now. I have a, a twin boy and a girl. Uh, they're two and a half. Uh, it's a Ruby Lorraine and Jack Dean Savage. And it's been interesting having my kids now because, you know, for all those years I took care of other people's kids. And now I have my own kids. And there are so many things now that make sense to me the urgency of education, not just in the social equity standpoint, but in a personal way, you know, that now I really understand that I want this school system to be the very best it can be because my kids are going to be in it soon. Mm -hmm. And I expect, you know, my, my nephews and nieces are already in it, but I, you know, if you're going to be ready for the savage children, we still have some work to do. Um, and so, and, and so it does, it makes it very personal. Um, so whatever, and I used to say as a principal, you know, I will not put a child in a classroom that I would not put my own child or my niece or nephew in. I used to say that. Now, of course, I didn't have any children, so it's convenient to say that. <laughs> but now I can legitimately say it. And it, it allowed me, I think, to confront when teachers were maybe not doing all that they could. It forced me to be able to say that to them. I had to. In my mind, that was the obligation. That was the trust that parents put in me was, hey, 
you know, I'm trusting you with my child. That's the most precious thing in the world to me. You, as the principal, need to make sure the people that are interacting with my child are of a certain caliber that you would put your own child in. And that became a very easy litmus for me to say, you know what, that's a fine, that's an appropriate standard. Well, now that I actually have children, I, I really, it, it's gone to a whole other level. And so I just, I, I just realized that there's so much being asked um, of us now, and I'm, I'm excited for the challenge. All right, well, we'll have to get your wife on oh, podcast at some time. You just wait. You'll be, you'll be blown away. She's really impressive. I promise. Rebecca, if you're <laughs> listening, we'll get you on here at some point. Uh, all right. So we kind of um, end each episode with uh, kind of rapid fire questions. Oh, I don't okay. know how much you prepared. Right, I don't I think I let you know about this ahead of time. <laughs> but um, what is your favorite book? Oh, man. Yeah, I, you know, you're going to think this is boring, but uh, John Cotter's Eight Stages of Change, basically it's had various iterations, I know, but it's organizational change, and it, I'm telling you, it's so powerful. It's a business book. He was, the, he was the dean of the Harvard Business School, but I'm telling you, every single bit of what he wrote, it applies to educational leadership, too, and organizational leadership. So. All right. My favorite book. Eight Stages of Change? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it, he's said different, it's, it's been called different things, but basically he has oh. eight stages of change, and that's, okay. the books have been called different things. Okay, so if people want to find that book, that yeah, might just have type in John titles. Cotter Eight Stages of Change. You'll you'll get it. I promise. It, it's just they they. I think what they do is they change the name each year so they can sell more of them. You uh, know, but a lot of the top, a lot of the content remains the same. But mm-hmm. I promise you, it's it's a worth a read if you're into organizational leadership. Sneaky. Okay. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite film school guy? What's mm-hmm. your favorite movie oh. or you know or TV show? Oh my god, that is so hard. You can name a couple if you. All like, right. You know, um. Oh man. Um Take your time. We can we can edit this long pause out <laughs> if we need to. Well, I really enjoyed um two shows that I really enjoyed, which I know everybody probably enjoys, but I enjoyed um House of Cards, I think is just very instructive. Uh and I really enjoyed um oh god, what is it called? It's on HBO at Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones, yeah. thank you. Um, I, and I really love like HBO's programming. Like there's pretty much everything that comes through there. I just mm-hmm. watch those shows over time, the premium stuff. Did I just you see Chernobyl? Oh, I did. Chernobyl is incredible. Yeah, really yeah. good. I mean, I just love that programming. It's yeah. like, you know, to me, those shows are a cut above even movies now because they allow you to really explore yeah. and go more in depth. I've heard, you know, a lot of people are saying like, you know, they, a lot of people say the the golden age of television was a long time ago, but mm-hmm. a lot of people now. think it's right now. I you think know, so. Because of... You know the long miniseries and like HBO drama series and like you know Breaking Bad and oh, there's and so many. That. I mean, I can't even tell you like the HBO mm-hmm. stuff. I just and we watch them on, mostly on streaming now. So like I, most of the shows, I would say I, I watch with my wife. So we watch them together, and it just it's just like wow, you mm-hmm. can't even you can't even beat it. It's well, in movies, so movies are kind of kind of dying mm-hmm. a little bit because you know you think about what are the you know what are the things that everybody talks about and it's mostly TV shows. Mm-hmm these days like oh did you see the last episode of game of thrones or yeah. did you check out the new season of you know stranger things or mm-hmm. whatever yeah stranger things um, too, yeah. you know a lot of people don't talk about movies that much anymore <laughs> unless it's point. like a big marvel movie or something yeah um okay cool what did you think about the, the finale of, <laughs> of game, game of thrones because i did not like it yeah i think a lot of people didn't like it i, I think it's really hard to take you know an in-depth series like that that it could move so slowly over so many seasons and you really get to know the various characters and, and then you all, just rush it yeah, yeah and that's the part i think probably is unsatisfying for people and they don't you know especially some of them you want to see 
you know, certain characters end up together and things like that. For those people who haven't seen them yet and are going to be watching it years, uh, you know, in the future, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's so true. Like, you know, it, it did feel rushed. It didn't always feel like our, we have our own. It's one of the things that's kind of unique. We have our own kind of personal conceptions of characters mm-hmm. and we kind of connect to them. And so when they do something that we don't think they would do in our conception of them, but maybe the writer's conception of them, it can create an emotional volatile reaction. So I think a lot of people were pretty upset with the ending, but yeah. I kind of, you know, I, yeah, I, I figured it was a hard thing to pull together. I don't think a lot of people flock to the Lee Schools TV podcast for their Game oh. of Thrones uh, well. recap. So I don't know how much we'd actually be <laughs> spoiling. Um, but yeah, um, I was disappointed. But, it was, you know, it was probably, you know, one of my top three favorite shows yeah. ever. So uh, who's your favorite uh, musical artist or, you know, favorite song? Gosh. You know, I, I it's really sad, but I, and I love music, like all different kinds of genres. I just really love music in general. I, not necessarily for the lyrics and words, but like the melodic sounds of it and things like that. Same, but yeah. The, How it makes the you one feel. who's, yeah, I just, I think for me, I just love having, I turn it up loud. I'm in the car, especially when I'm by myself. When I'm driving with my family, I have to keep it low. And so I don't really get to enjoy it the way I like. <laughs> um, but I, a voice right now that I just like love, and it's probably all edited when I just, Halsey's voice. Oh, yeah. Kelsey, she's like mm-hmm. a female artist right now, mm-hmm. and I just like every single song she sings. It just, it just yeah. feels so visceral, and like I love the. It's just I get, I get like a feeling listening to it. She's got a unique know. voice, unique sound, and I've heard her sing, you know, over television, you know, broadcast. So you know, I know that it's not all just edited, but I, I just that's a that's an artist who currently right now mm-hmm. I just love listening to that voice. So, um, so growing up. I'm sure you didn't, you know, you didn't get to film school until college, but what, what was your favorite subject in school, you know, oh, growing up? Man, I really loved all the subjects. I, I you know, I, I'm, I like to learn. I think that's just uh, kind of part of them. Pick one. I know. Well, maybe I, I, I wouldn't say that I really enjoyed it in school, but like science to me is super fascinating. Like just an understanding of all the things in the universe, things that are, you know, that don't change, things that we just gain deeper and deeper insight to over time. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. science is my most fascinating subject, but I would not say that I loved it in school. I felt like a lot of it was worksheets and memorizing key terms. Whereas as I get older, I just love reading about science and things and understanding complex, you know, scientific thoughts. And is like Albert certain- Einstein to me is like one of the most fascinating mm-hmm. people. I love to read stuff that he's written, journals and things like that. I just love that kind of stuff. So um I don't know if you just answered this next question with Albert Einstein, but if you could have dinner with anyone living or dead, who would it be and why? Oh my God! Okay, you can't say, pick you two? can't say Albert Einstein. Okay, so sure, since, you, since you, you know I already like him, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'd love to talk to someone like Abraham Lincoln, to me, um, because I think the synthesis of kind of the social issue that he had to tackle at the time, and maybe he didn't have to tackle, but chose to tackle, and the context that he had to operate in, being in a political environment where you have a really divided nation and yet you have these kind of moral conundrums that must be addressed to me. I, I just think to hear how he approached what he did and so forth. Like, I just think that would be, you know, I mean, you think about what happened in that time and think about how different the world would be had that not happened mm-hmm. when it did, you yeah. know, because you're dealing with economic issues, which in, in, from a country's landscape are so big, but you're dealing really with just human issues, human <laughs> human issues and and so to me if i could have dinner with anybody it would be it would probably be him but albert einstein too just because i'd want to pick his brain and he was very humble his brilliant you know albert einstein might have been the most brilliant mind we've ever had possibly 
certainly some of the things he came with, the theories and things he came up with have, have come, we we're actually discovering now some of the theories he had years ago that they couldn't prove, we're actually proving now. So he had, you know, just, he was really forward thinking. So from a cognitive standpoint, you have that, but from like a moral and, um, and just from a, you know, kind of, cause I, 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 I see the parallels with education, what we do, I would say Abraham Lincoln. All right. Very cool. Uh, all right. Well, Ken Savage, Executive Director for Strategic Sustainability and Governance. I'm getting pretty good at getting that out. Yeah. <laughs> Better than I am, Adam. <laughs> well, thank you so much for stopping by and um, being the first guest of our second season of the Lee Schools TV podcast. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. All right. And thank you for watching and listening. See you next time.